Hi, good afternoon. This is Wayne Newell, and I'm so glad to be with you today. That's my opening line in everything I do. Welcome to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been traveling around my home state of Maine, interviewing people 60 and above about their lives and what it's like to be getting older. Today's conversation is with Wayne Newell, a Passamaquoddy Indian man who lives at Indian Township, a Passamaquoddy Indian reservation or community in Princeton, Maine. I made the trip, about five hours from Portland, with Sister Ellen Turner, who introduced me to Wayne. For many years, she and other Sisters of Mercy taught school on Maine's reservations, and she and Wayne were co-principals at St. Anne's School in the 70s, and then again in the late 80s in the newly built Indian Township School. Wayne and I sat together at his dining room table in the home he shares with his wife Sandy overlooking Big Lake. Beautiful country. I hope you enjoy and learn something from our conversation. I certainly did. If I didn't have this pneumonia, my voice would be much better. Oh. But that's just the way it is. I didn't want to cancel. I'm so glad you didn't cancel. Yeah, I'm so yeah. glad you didn't cancel. But my voice is not the best condition that, that it could be. Well, you do have a broadcast quality voice. Yeah, well, it's better when it's not sick. <laughs> when Sister Ellen suggested, you've got to interview Wayne Newell, and I went, I know that name. I know that name. So you've been around for a few years. Oh, yeah, yeah. How old I'm, are you now? I'm 77. What's your birthday? Uh, April 16th, 1942. All right. You didn't grow up here. No, I grew up at Pleasant Point, which is near Eastport. And, and that's uh, about, oh, I'd say an hour from here. East. So, it's east from here. Yeah. Okay, and this is all Passamaquoddy land? It is. And it you is. are a Passamaquoddy yeah. Indian? Yeah. And I, I grew up there, and then I went to school, and I came here for the summer, and I've been here for well over 40 years. Wow. So tell me, first of all, Indian Township is near, is it near Callis? It's near the Canadian border? Well, Princeton is just over the bridge here. And then Callis is about, oh, I'd say another 25 miles and so Callis is the midpoint of the two reservations um, they uh, it's a sort of a where everybody gathers that's right. our where you get the store you know that kind of thing and so it's a midpoint and then from here to Bangor it's about two hours but everything is pretty well as you introduce the place it's pretty well country yeah. You know, I live right by the lake here. Oh, this is yeah, unbelievably beautiful. And um, um, they uh, people keep asking me what because we have other land too. Mm -hmm. Why don't you get a camp? I said, Why do I need one? I, my on boat's right here, right, right. I got to walk down, and that's it. Yeah. You know, and um, I don't need a camp. I got one already. You live on it. Yeah. Well, when we came in and we parked across from the church and um, the moon was out, and so it was reflected. That's called Little Lake? Big Lake. Wait, there, are there two here that come together, or is it just one? Yeah, there's, there's one. It's, uh, this is Big Lake, and you go a little further, and it's Long Lake. Okay, so even that part that's across from the church is called Big Lake. Well, that's where it changes. Okay. Yeah, 
that the lake narrows and the uh, cemetery is there and then it just opens up here to a, a very big lake. Well, yeah. it's magnificent. Well, I, I would like to go back in time and then we'll come, we'll come back to Indian Township. Sure. <laughs> I'd love to know about you as a child and growing up at Pleasant Point and what was it like for you as a child there? Well, everybody was poor. <laughs> we were poor, but we didn't realize we were poor. It uh, just seemed like there was a way of life. And, uh, you know, you knew about like indoor bathrooms and stuff like that. We didn't have them on the reservation. Um, and uh, so, uh, or water, you had to go to a common well to get water to take to the house. And you had your own um, source of um, fire and that was wood. So my brother and I kind of learned that there's a way of life and, and uh, didn't think any more about it. We lived in a very small house, two room house. Were there just two kids and your uh, parents? No, there were three. There was my sister and my brother and I. And uh, my mother was um, sort of a primary um, provider because my father drank a lot. And um, so he was home and then they would have a fight and he would be gone again. Hmm. So, you know, we, we had a very, very uh, um, small uh, father relationship. Did you ever reconcile with him? Oh yeah, we did. Good. We did. Yeah, and um, he he um, unfortunately he smoked bad too, so he died at an early age. What I consider now an early age, I didn't then. Uh, Fifty-six. Hmm. Did he have lung cancer? Yeah, yeah, and he lung cancer. Smoked those cigarettes without you so, know oh. any filter or anything. They're bad enough with the filters, let alone with the Yeah, them. yeah, and uh, so he just smoked and smoked. And by the time we learned to smoke, we used to take <laughs> cigarettes from him, um, you know, and, uh, but 56 for me was an early age, because I'm 77 now, and I think it, that's early. And you quit smoking, you said oh, yeah, you smoked about 38 years ago. Okay, good yeah. for you. Yeah. yeah, now when you hit your 70s, um, suddenly you have a whole different perspective on what's old. Yes. Um, a whole, I don't know, I'm just reaching the age now when they start introducing elders. I used to never stand up. Now you have to. <laughs> now I'm about to because what happens is um, a lot of my friends have already gone, have passed, and... Uh, I, I just don't have a, an idea of, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of it or anything like that, but a lot of my friends have, have, have just gone. And I found that when your parents go and your aunts and uncles go and you realize, somebody just said it yesterday, I think, you're in the front row. That's a good way to put it. Yep. You're... you're you know, to to uh, realize that you're on the waiting list. 
So you got to make the best of it. That's what I'm finding yeah, out. Yeah. It is what it is, and you've got to make what you can of it. Yeah, and it is, actually, it's a lot of fun. What's fun about it for you? It's What's fun about it is that you get to wait your turn. You know what's going to happen. <laughs> and um, I, I just sort of sit around and, um, you know, like, for, for example, I decided there's a lot of books that have been written over the last 40 years through work that I've done, I said, well, the little individual books are all gone now. I have a master set. I'm gonna make a book, a volume out of these things and ask the tribe to pay for it. And they did. They, they, they both the reservations gave in to publishing because as you probably know, uh, things aren't free uh, when you're doing that kind of thing. So they gave us some uh, a nice sizable thing in their budget. And we're going to publish the first volume. Um, it's, it's already at the printers, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to publish it, oh, probably in the next couple of months. What's the book about? It's all the collection of all the work. Uh, written by um, some written by me and others written by other tribal members so instead of saying written by Wayne Newell which would not be totally correct I said edited by Wayne Newell and and, and I did edit a lot of the books and um, the a lot of my friends um, for example the the first book the first story is called Mollyon, which is Marianne. And she wrote the book interviewing a lot of the elders at the time um, about what it's like to be an Indian girl living on the reservation in the 1920s. Wow. And she went and interviewed people like my mother mm -hmm. and, and other people and put the story together in a chronological way and uh, very well done very well done and written in the Passamaquoddy language it, it it was written in the Passamaquoddy language and in English yeah because she was bilingual yeah yeah and you are too we were all bilingual when we were children so you, you know? learned it was just the language that was spoken in your family did it go back and forth between English and Passamaquoddy we were all Passamaquoddy speakers we were all that was the primary language we learned English as soon as we went to the school. Mrs. There was a. Ch uh, I didn't go here, but I learned about her. Her name was Mrs. Wellington, and she taught in Princeton. From Princeton, came over across the bridge, and um, uh, started teaching school. The mostly the alphabet and uh, how to read English, and how to speak English, and uh, arithmetic. You know, which was very common curriculum in those days. And um, did you have an actual school there? Or did she come and? It's, no, it's a little. It was. It converted as a school room, mm -hmm. and multi-grade, and also um, it served as a church. You know, on on weekends. So the reservation was separate from anything else around you. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody was, uh, nobody was here. They. And we learned later as we studied things that 
a lot of parents taught their children, if you're not good, I'm going to send you up to those Indians. You know, it was a negative thing. Oh, what a horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's kind of what happened. But Mrs. Wellington appeared to be a very kind soul and um, taught. I don't know if she got paid or what the deal was. Probably the state paid her. So she yeah. she she came, but you don't know who sent her in the first place. Yeah, and I think that she was very um, very kind and very uh, um, anxious to teach. Hmm, that's nice. And the kids that Mollyon interviewed, Mary Ann, her name was Mary Ellen, actually. Uh, the people that she interviewed. Um, spoke well of her, you know, spoke kindly of her as a, uh, and that was not always possible because sometimes the, the, the white people living around us uh, made us negative too, you know. Because of the way they talked about you or treated you, so yeah, that it yeah. didn't actually bring out warm feelings from right. you toward them. That's exactly, exactly what it was. Huh. And, and uh, so... We learn to be negative also. And Terrible lesson for a child to learn. It is, very, it is not a very good way to uh, look at the world. Uh, as you grow older, though, you, uh, you kind of put that away to a certain extent. It still lives inside you? Yeah, but I was al you were always careful um, because you could tell who was genuinely likable and you could tell who was not likable, you know. And, and uh, so um, as you grow older, you, you, you learn those kinds of things. Hmm. Yeah. Tell me, when you were a kid, how you would come into contact with white people? You didn't very often. You, you went to Eastport, in my case. That was the town that you would go to. Um, they had a train service there, my mother taught me. And the train would uh, stop at Pleasant Point. There was actually a little station there. Huh. And you'd get on, and it was 12 cents to, uh, to go to Eastport. And uh, so they'd all go to Eastport at a certain time. And they would, the train would go quite often. It was a uh, freight train in those days. Um, and and uh, they would go quite often. My mother named the times. I can't remember them now. Hmm. Uh, the train station is gone, but they would get on and pay the fine, and um, they go to Eastport. And you, the English part was handy when you talk to the merchants. J.J. Um, Newberry's uh, was there, and some other other little things, and they're all gone now. You wouldn't recognize it. But would you go with your mother to Eastport? Yeah. And you yeah. do some shopping? Yeah, yeah. Did, that, you, did you ever go to school outside of the reservation? Uh, oh, yeah, I went to the high school there. So you went, did you get on the train and go to Eastport to go to high school? I can't remember. I, no, they had a bus. State provided a bus. So for many years as a child, you were mostly on the reservation. Yeah. And then you started to go to school, to high school. Is that the first time that you were with white people, white kids in school? Yeah, well, no, it's not the first time because the nuns taught, taught us. Um, uh, we had a three-room schoolhouse, and the grades were all split up 
pretty evenly. Um, so when you got to the big room, <laughs> we called it the big room, um, and that was, uh, I think it was seventh and eighth grade. Um, they kind of polished you off before they sent you off to uh, high school. Was that challenging? Because uh, you talk about the way white people treated you from when you were a little child, and then suddenly you're in there sharing a classroom with white kids. Well, that was that was part of the problem. There was a problem there. Um, if you were a good student, like I was, uh, you did all right, and everybody pretty much accepted you. If you weren't, um, then then you had trouble um, uh, getting acquainted and getting, you know getting used to the situation. It was hard to adjust. One thing I noticed, um, which is different today, but one thing I noticed was we never invited them to our houses or the other way around. But so, you became friends with them on the, in the schoolyard? Just in the schoolroom, yeah. There was no social mixing at that time. But that must have been such a negative experience. Well, you didn't notice it until later on in life, you know, at least I didn't. I mean, and looking back. Yeah, yeah. And so do you think that means that in those moments you just accepted it because that's the way well, it, it had I, always been in a No, way? I think it's shame. We were ashamed of our houses, you know, and, and the way they looked. And, uh, uh, and they were brought up, don't forget, I told you a little while ago, if you're not good, I'm going to send you over to those Indians. You know, that was a negative thing. Now, that's a shameful thing, too. Yeah. That would induce shame in somebody. Yeah. So just shame in who you are. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of that was inter, interplayed here. And so there was a very, very low social mixing, mm -hmm. if anything else. So you must have struggled at some point with what they call low self-esteem. Very much, very much so. Even though, for example, I was an A student, I still didn't think much of that, you know. I, I, uh, um, they talked about when they put you in the different classes, there was a general, there was a commercial, and, uh, and then there was a college course. No Indian ever got put into the college course, even though he was a good student. I was a good student, for example. And, and so you should have been in the college course. At least, or at least the commercial. And, um, but I never got there. They all put you in the general course. And uh, you, you just didn't have any place to, you know, to go. We thought that's where you belonged. And so it would never occur to you to even speak up about it. No, no, it would never, never occur. There were a few teachers that were really good. They're still friends of mine today. Good. Well, they, oh, they have passed already. There was a, a lady called Mrs. Grant. She lived in Dennysville, and she was really, really super. And um, we would wait for the bus in the morning, and her, her cub would come first, and she'd load it up with Passamaquoddy <laughs> and uh, Zoom, you know. She'd go. Yeah, and, and she wrote a book later. And I'm in the book. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. And you liked what she wrote? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she was quite elderly by then. Um, and though she retired and became a substitute, and we all looked forward to uh, her substituting, you know. She just, 
She was super. Hmm. Yeah. Your book that you've edited, you say it starts off with Marianne's story, does yeah, it? Yeah, Marianne's story, and then it goes with some of the traditional stories that, uh, that were uh, part of uh, what my grandmother would teach or some other person would teach on the reservation. I put those in there. Did you include your story in the, in oh, yeah. the book? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a, one famous one about an oven a talking bread going into the oven, and uh, they would look into the window. I'm okay, you know. And and you know this is all spoken. It's like it's like television now when kids watch TV. Yeah. And um, so it started getting warm, and he started turning a little bit brown, and he would report that. And uh, as it progressed, his dialogue became your monitor. Oh, I don't know, it's getting a little warm in here. You know, that kind of thing. And it would be in Passamaquoddy, of course. Right. And, uh, and then finally the owner would say, I think he's done. And this, this one word became famous. It's a gay ya, which means ouch. <laughs> and uh, so it was time to take him out. Again. And and again, yeah, yeah, it was his ouch. And of course, he used it again when they took the knife out to cut him up. Oh, good lord. Yeah. <laughs> so it got picked up by the adults, and and they all kind of used it, the word. They knew the word, obviously, and uh, it just. Especially by the elders. Right. The elders loved it. How many people speak Passamaquoddy these days? These days, that's the trouble we've been having. The more we worked on it, the uh, the less it became in terms of usage by the uh, younger generation. I'd say anybody that's uh, 50 or older probably is bilingual. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not that's not whole. That's not totally true. Um, and then after that, there's a lot of people like my sister. My sister grew up in the same house that we did. Twenty years later, she was born, and uh, she understands everything. But her generation would answer you in English, hmm. and and uh, so uh, you you. I test her every now and then, like she'll drive me to Bangor to the cancer center. And uh, so what I'll do is uh, I'll speak nothing but Pat McQuaddy. She understands me. But she can't answer back. Oh, yeah. She, she can, can when I say, and I say, why don't you answer me in Pat McQuaddy? She can. And I say, why don't you use that? She said, I'm afraid to make a mistake. I, you know, it's that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, she and that generation, it's the same time that television started entering the reservation. It's very important to you at age 76 to preserve your language, and yet fewer people seem interested in even learning it now? Well, I think that we need um, coaching. We need uh, a lot of help. What we've been doing lately is preserving 
is using electronics as, as our ruder, tutor. And uh, that, that helps a lot. Uh, publishing these books, um, you know, and uh, using some other methodology um, has helped an awful lot. Books, um, CDs, that kind of thing. And, and we've been working hard at it, so after we're gone, there'll be something left. Right, there'll at least be something. I listened to some of your audio. Um, well, I listened to a couple of things. There were some recordings from the late 1800s. Yes, we then, were the first, actually, we were the first Native American tribe in the country to be recorded by Fuchs. And... Um, um, in 1890, he came to Callis to test his new machine, this new Edison machine. And uh, he was a colonel or some, I think it's major. Uh, and he was going to go out to uh, uh, Hopi country. And somebody suggested, they said, well, there's a tribe in Maine that still speaks their language and their la language story is, is quite fluent. Uh, why don't you go there and test it? And he took up the audience, um, took up the challenge and came to Callis. And so people at Pleasant Point, as well as here, gathered there. And um, we were the first tribe, in fact, to be recorded. And it's in a book somewhere. We just found it. We just happened to find it. We tried to teach our children that fact, that you and your descendants, oh, is it, is it descendants? The ancestor, it, well, the descendants or the ancestors. No, ancestors. yes, the descendants, the people who keep their children and their children, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, Future yeah. generations. Yeah. Okay. I said they were the first, and you, you carry on the tradition. We try to teach that as much as possible in school. To you talked a little bit earlier about um, the whole notion of low self-esteem. It's it's still strong and heavy here. Or if you're going to be successful, people usually will point to the white community as their mark of success. Sure, of course. Which is not good. I've got to tell you that it makes me feel shame. Yeah. It makes yeah. me sh feel shame for white people. Yeah, yeah. Well, what what we try to do is work together, build a coalition, and uh, try to try to uh, work as if that stuff did happen. Mm -hmm. We try to make sure it doesn't happen again, and and that's that kind of thing that works the best in my life anyway. Um, use what God gave you. Because God gave us all the same gifts, and and put yours in a protectively um, positive way, and it will work. It will work. It's worked in my life anyway. Well, I need to know. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I would like to ask you a personal question. Were you born with an eyesight problem? Yes, I was. I had a. Uh, we were all. Um, uh, what you call uh, midwives, mm -hmm. and she didn't have that stuff that they would uh, drop in your eyes like they would have a common birth now. 
Um, she didn't have any that day I was born, apparently. And uh, so I lost my left eye. This is the glass eye you're looking at. That's why it's closed. The left eye is gone. They took it out, and you've yeah. got a glass eye. Right. The right one, you can hardly see out of it without glasses. Well, it's 2200. And I've functioned real well with it. All your it's life. It's I know. Everything. Has it been like that your entire life? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the only thing I know. I can do all of the things that you can do, except I do them slower, slowly. You have been defined, well, defined, that's not a very good word. You've been described as a brilliant man. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure I can live up to that, but uh, well, I'll take it. You, so you had to have some brilliance, both in spirit and in your brain, to be able to, I understand that when you left high school, you went to Massachusetts, you went to Boston, you went to Harvard? I went to Harvard eventually, yeah, after flunking out of two schools. Harvard still accepted me. Okay, so tell me about the flunking out. This Hold is on. after high school, what did you decide? I went, I went to uh, um, Emerson College in Boston. It's the same place that Carol Burnett went to. Were you hoping to be another Carol Burnett or were you wanting to be uh, a something? I, I just wanted to to do something. It just was too difficult um, because I lived on the reservation, don't forget, all of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Eastport High School, which is next to the reservation, and then graduated. And then somehow or other, I wanted to go into broadcasting. And you landed in Boston, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, the big city. Was it really? It was shocking. It was a cultural, true cultural shock I can now ascribe to. And at it, the time? Oh my God, it was just unbelievable. Big, big Boston. I mean, Eastport was big enough. But wow, you were so brave to even try it. Well, I wanted to get to broadcasting so bad that I would go anywhere. And so I went and it just did not work out. I was in too many situations where God, we didn't do this at home. Like what? Um, just just going to a restaurant. Um, just going, um, no having, I had $28 a week of discretionary funds. Um, and um, so I ate, of course, at the high school. That was part of my, I mean, at the uh, college. That was part of my scholarship. So I had a scholarship to go there. Okay. Yeah. A, a full scholarship? Um, I can't remember. Somebody provided the scholarship. Okay. Um, and so we, that's where I ate. But it was only one meal a day. That's the only thing that, uh, so what I would do would be use the $28, uh, stretch it as much as I could. But at night I would have a big meal to last me to, to the next night. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, so it was, it was, it was something else. But what made you leave? It was just harder than I expected. The work or the environment? Uh, the environment, and and the other thing is uh, the equipment. Um, the equipment that I was used to playing with mm -hmm. was was nothing compared to um, 
what was in the studio at uh, at um, Emerson. Emerson. So you had already been dabbling in broadcasting. Yeah, at yeah, schools. and uh, you had to write commercials, which I never did. You know, it was just unbelievable. So it was harder than you thought it might be, and you were struggling uh, yeah. to learn it. Uh, well, the thing that I wanted to do was just what came out of me was natural. I could do that. You know, I could speak and I could present, mm -hmm. but I can't. I couldn't write commercials, and, they and that discouraged that me. And what about how people treated you? There was a little less. It was not. It was we're away from Eastport. I was just a student. So and that was good. That must have been good for how you felt about yourself, not having to put up with the discrimination and. It was on the outside, but it was still me that was fighting me. Mm -hmm. I was fighting my own devils at that point. I couldn't really blame anybody else. So after two years, you just decided, I want to come after home? After a year. One year, and you yeah. came home. But you gave it another shot someplace else? I, gave, I went to Holton. Directly from Emerson, I went to Holton, which was, again, right in the heart of reservation country. And, and we're back to uh, discrimination number one again. Mm -hmm. and, and what's uh, at Holton? Is there a university? Th there were a lot of Indians living in, the, in there. Some of them lived at the Holton dump. Some of the Indians lived at the Holton yeah, dump? Yeah, and, and uh, um, th there's a reservation there now. What's it called? Not at the dump, but... Uh, no. In Holton. Th yeah, there's a nice village there. And, and what's the reservation called? And are they Passamaquoddy Indians or another? The Maliseet, Passamaquoddy, Micmac. Okay. They call them mixed in. And in Holton, was there a school, a broadcasting school that you went to? No, no. It was you just, just a, moved to Holton? It was just a liberal college. Okay. Yeah. And how long did you last there? Uh, a year. Did you learn anything? No, my grades were very low. And I knew I could do better, but I didn't. So how did you land at Harvard? There was a friend of mine, he was the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. He said, why don't you apply to Harvard? I said, I can't apply to Harvard. I flunked out at two schools. He said, give it a case. Give, write down why you should be accepted at the master's level. Wow. I said, I can't do that. I don't even have a bachelor's degree. He said, make a case. So. What I did was, I stayed up all night. You know, I'm getting emotional. I can tell. And uh, I, I stayed up all night and just poured the stuff right off me. And and uh, wrote and wrote. And um, then I had Sandy type out what I wrote, edit it somewhat. She's a secretary, and uh, so I did that, read it over. I said, yeah, it looks pretty good. Sent it out. So I sent it to the school of admissions, and pretty soon I get a letter. It said, we'd like to have you interviewed. I said, ah, oh, we're in the business now because I love, I can manage an interview better than I can ma manage a ball game. I went, I got, I got a new suit. It was all black. 
said it was looked like an undertaker. <laughs> anyway, so I went up there, and it was my turn. And I walked in. There's a guy with a full beard, with a flannel shirt, and dungarees. Because now dungarees are fashionable. I wear them all the time. So there was that, and everybody else had a sort of a a flannel, funny dungaree get up that kind of, and there was a big table they were all sitting there and um, so I introduced myself they take my paper out and test me for it and um, you know what what did you mean when you said and um, so once we got started I was in charge of the interview wow pretty much and, um, and then they, they only allowed a certain time. Said, well, thank you very much, Mr. Newell. We appreciate it. And um, so I left the room and I said, ah, oh, shit, I really blew it. I didn't. They came, sent me a letter a few, few days later saying uh, that I had been accepted to matriculate. <laughs> I didn't know what matriculate meant. <laughs> you looked it up. <laughs> Back in the day when you didn't Google it, you went to you, the dictionary. You, you got it. You got it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, which meant that I was okay and uh, start school at a certain time. But I had to go to summer school. Mm -hmm. I was a little behind with, uh, they saw my marks at the other places, but they still accepted me. This past year, I got to address the gra graduation class, I was in the School of Education. Mm -hmm. I got to address the graduating class of the School of Education. At Harvard. At Harvard, yeah. What an yeah. accomplishment. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, except the only, thing, <laughs> the only thing is, it was outdoors and it was late May and it was gotta be the coldest day in history that I can yeah. remember. I'm trying to give the speech, and my jaw is going like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when you attended school there, was it a good experience? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I loved it. I I really truly loved it. And um, if I can get another scholarship, I'd like to go back and do my finish my doctorate. So you have a master's degree? Yeah, I have a master's, but I'd like to have a doctor a doctorate. Um, I don't know Newell, why. That sounds good. I don't know why, but... Why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah. Um, when you left Harvard, you chose to come back to Maine and you chose to live here? Well, that's an interesting story because I was, uh, what was I, 40 years old. No, I wasn't 40 years old. That was 40 years ago. Okay, so... I had one child and one was born before I graduated. Hmm. So I didn't just study. <laughs> so it was uh, not just being a full-time student. Right, right. Because yeah. you were living down there while you were going to school. Yeah. Now yeah. I've got to go back for a second. Yeah. Um, if Sandy's still sitting there, we're going to talk about her. You said she helped type up that letter. Were you married at that time or dating or friends? No, we were married. Okay. We had one child already. Okay. Yep. How did you and Sandy meet? Because Sandy's not Passamaquoddy, is she? No. We met, I worked at WABI Studios on Channel 5 
in Bangor. So you did get into broadcasting. Oh, a little bit, a little bit. What did you do? I, I was pretty much a technician, technical uh, person. Um, and then you did some unglorified work like wash floors. Like I'd do anything to stay in the business. Right. But anyway, that's how we met. So Sandy I, worked there? I would go over. No, Sandy was quite a, one of the best bowlers in Bangor at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, um, what happened was um, I would go over for coffee for the gang after the news and after the busy part. And uh, so I would meet this woman and she'd always sort of smile at me. And um, so one night I decided to talk to her. And because um, we were both shy. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was more shy than I, they let on. And she was very shy, very shy. She still is. Um, anyway, uh, something must have worked because the other day we celebrated our 52nd wedding anniversary. Mm, I love that story. Yeah, yeah. Was there any kind of pressure from your family, though, to marry somebody within your tribe? Uh, I think there, there might have been. But they accepted Sandy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's a very likable person. And... Um, Nowadays, Sandy probably understands as much as the language as anybody. Wow. Uh, over the years, she's picked up a lot. Tell me about some of the traditions, the, the cultural things that you grew up with and that you're trying to preserve. Well, we're trying to preserve the things about sharing, about, you know, making sure that that you, you always have a, when you eat, you always share whatever you got with anybody that walks into your place. Mm -hmm. um, about sharing um, stories about how life was in the past and how it is now. Because even then there was a, even then there was a, like a, um, way in which things were different to what it was then. There's always a time clock. There's always a chronology. Uh, and you, you always have to kind of find it and make sure that it gets wound up every now and then. This is a cultural chronology. And, um, and of course, there has been more change from the middle, from the low 60s, to today because of all the changes. I mean, just just look at these communities now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you looked around when you were driving in, but this particular, where we're sitting on, did not exist 40 years ago. I sense that it changed mostly with the um, Indian land claim settlement. <clears throat> I think it would have happened anyway. You do? You know, people always point to that. I think it would have happened anyway. Just because the world in general was changing? Yeah, world in general is changing. And the other thing is that you've got um, better housing. This is all not related to the land claims. Land claims gained after that. So the houses started to become better? Yeah, you had indoor, indoor bathrooms, indoor faucets. That kind of thing. Well, that, you, that was quite a change. You were living here before the land claims? Here? 
No. Yeah, had to be, because I graduated in 1971. And when was the land claims? I can't remember. 19, the date. 1980. 1980. And the community really didn't start to feel it until after that. So what changed with the land claims? And for people that, for people who don't know about the land claim settlement or any of that, can you give us a summary of what that was all about? We sued the state. We didn't really sue the state. We, we sued Maine in a federal court. And, and uh, they were supposed to be protecting us. We wanted the protection that other tribes got um, throughout the nation. So not, not the tribes of Maine did not get any protection. No, we wanted the federal government to sue Maine. Okay. Okay, and they did because of Janu. Judge Janu said that it was the obligation of the federal government to protect us and, and came down with the judgment um, in 1980, or maybe a little earlier, and right off the bench, he, that was a miracle movement on his part. Um, Edward Janu was one of the most brilliant judges to, uh, as a matter of fact, as they were considered him for the um, uh, Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. Um, at any rate, um, that didn't happen, but he continued with the, with the thing, came down with that decision. And um, so what happened with the community, though, there was a realization on the part of the community. Um, the Indian community? Yeah, on the part of the Indian community that something really was going to happen, and it's going to be real. That was really when it caught on in the community. And what was going to be different? We're going to own more land. We're probably going to have some funds to go with it, that kind of thing. And it did happen. And it did happen. It did happen. So at that time, we've got how many tribes here in Maine? There's four. So there's the Pasamaquoddy, the Penobscot. The Maliseet? And the Mi'kmaq. How much more land did you get, the Passamaquoddies get? Well, we had 300,000 acres divided between the two communities. Evenly? Evenly, yeah. Penobscot and Passamaquoddy divided the 300,000 acres, which would be what? About 150,000 150, each. Okay. Yeah. And then your 150,000 was um, split between Pleasant Point and here? And other places um, that didn't have any people in them. But now do? Um, well, they have to ask the tribe if they, if they can. So what happened with here at Indian Township? What would, how did the population change? People just started coming back home. What did you do for work when you came back here? I wor worked at the school. And um, I, I also worked um, with two other people to develop the uh, Blueberry Company, uh, myself and a well-respected um, former tribal governor 
Uh, now they call them chiefs. I, I, I don't because I grew up with calling them governor. So the three of us, and the president of the Bar Harbor Banking and Trust Company, the three of us were the, we had exclusive right to work with the company. Mm -hmm. And um, so we worked at it. I knew nothing about, I knew nothing about uh, blueberry operations. <laughs> um, so, and my friend didn't either. Her name called him Bibi Francis, Francis um, Nicholas. Uh -huh. But this other guy knew the financial end of it, things, the, the president of the Barb Banking and Trust Company. And I said to myself, this guy must know something. Right, he's running a bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, I'm going to learn from him, which is what I've always done. I've always sought out smarter people than me. That's good advice. I always ask the people I interview, what's the best advice you you could give that you've learned? Yeah. Think about people who know more than you do, and they'll teach you something. And that, that's exactly what I did. And then the other way around was culturally, he wanted to know who he was working with. And so he was looking at us. We did, all this was not expressed, by the way, in, in like, you know, like this. Mm -hmm. It was expressed in the way in which we operated. Right. Yeah, and so... Uh, um, but you learned from each other something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm worried that I'm, I know you've got your lung issues, and so I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to sap you of your energy, and I have some questions that I want to ask you no, about. No, I'm still good. Okay. Yeah. Um, you said you retired just not too long ago? I retired from the school from uh, 2012 when I got the, diagnosed uh, with cancer. Oh, yes, that's right. You're under treatment for cancer still. Yeah, and I was diagnosed um, at 2012, and, and so they didn't give me much time, but I've been still here. Thank I think why I'm here is because I'm so energetic. <laughs> What and kind of cancer were you diagnosed It's with? a blood cancer, multiple myeloma. Yeah, you got it. They got it. And how did you find out that you had it? Well, I was sick a lot of the times, and I was anemic, that kind of thing. And I went to about every specialist in Maine. Finally, this one lady um, said, I'm going to send you to this uh, uh, oncologist and uh, we'll see what happens. So we went, and they discovered that that's what I had. Um, I would lose blood. They don't know why. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew why. And uh, so I said, how much time do I have without treatment? She said, two years. I said, what about treatment? She said, we don't know. They have new kinds of treatment now. Are you doing yeah. the new treatments? Is it immunotherapy? Um, well, they've got they've got some kind of a treatment. Right now, I'm still doing chemo and some other stuff. So, whatever combination they're giving me, it's working. And how often do you have to go and have a treatment? A month. That's. I used to go twice twice a week. Sandy would drive me to Bangor twice a week, no matter what the weather was. Wow. And uh, now it's just maintenance. I go once a month. Okay. And you've got oxygen in your nose. You've got those little, I think they're called cannulars in yeah. your nose. So yeah. you've been having some trouble with your lungs? No, it's my heart. 
Okay, and that's yeah. a separate issue. Well, it, it's related to the. Is it related to the disease or? It's related to the disease, but the heart is also weakened by somewhat. By the cancer or by the treatments? By no, just just weakened, and they want to put less stress on the heart. I had um, two successful operations. What did they do in the operations? One, well, one day they stayed on the, they kept me on the table for nine hours. Good Lord. And, uh, and then the other one, six hours. What, what happened was that they... Uh, Fibrillation? Yeah, at uh, what the AFib, they call it. When your heart starts to, like your hands were going. You got it, yeah. you got it, yeah. And then, um, so they fixed it. The first time they thought they fixed it, oh. and they didn't. So we went in back in again. This is inside the heart. They went back in again, and they that? did fix it. And so now we're playing close to the heart, making sure that everything's all right. Now today, my heart rate was 72, which is good. Yep. But before, you could tell when the hell it was going to go. And your little horse, you said, your broadcast voice isn't quite what it should be. No, no, it isn't. So you have developed pneumonia, too. Oh, I had a lot of pneumonia, yeah. You had a lot of pneumonia? Yeah, and oh. so I said to them, anything, I'll do anything, but keep me out of the hospital, you know. You're which, quite a fighter, aren't you? Yeah, I said, I don't want to go to the hospital. I've been there so many times. Yeah. <clears throat> and so. Uh, How do you keep up? your spirit I think I believe that I believe wrong string that we're we all gonna die and my turn is coming somewhere meanwhile we're given gifts that maybe we don't realize the gifts um, as as we undergo this chapter of our lives and, and uh, God has just given all these lessons to us uh, while we're still alive so that we prepare for the next, next part of our lives. I don't know what to call it, but I believe there's something else besides this. I believe you don't, you don't just die. Right. You believe that I'm there's very, something after you die. Yeah, because... and I believe that very strongly. That's why I'm not afraid to go. I mean, you know, the other... Oh, a few mo last year, I think it might have been, my lungs shut down, both of them, from pneumonia. And they said, we'd better send him to Bangor. So they got one of those helicopter things, wow. tied me up with the whole nine yards. And uh, I thought it was then. So you may not have been afraid, but I bet you're your family, your Sandy, yeah, well, probably. Uh, we've talked about it quite a bit, yeah. me and Sandy. Um, and and uh, what what uh, it will happen? It might even happen before me. You know, who knows? That's right. We don't know, do we? No. What do you think have been some of the hardest lessons you've had to learn in your life? I recognize my own devils much better than I used to. What do you think is the hardest devil you've had to fight? Me. What makes you a devil? It just. It's just spirit that won't quit trying to fight you. 
You know, it's uh, it's like the, remember I said at the beginning of our discussion, I said something to the effect that um, we were poor, but we didn't know it. Right. And, and um, the more that I experienced, the more that I experienced this, this bad spirit. And so you get ready and you, 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 you get your foot ready and you start saying, all right, I'll take you on, you know. <laughs> I probably would be dead like so many of my friends if I, were, um, if I weren't utilizing the philosophy of uh, uh, 12 Steps. And, and, uh, and, and I use that program because it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. It makes sense uh, to use something that view life in a different perspective. Right, like that you, you feel like you have to be in control of everything, yes. but you don't have to and be I'm in not. control of everything. And I'm not. Huh. But I can be part of it. And, uh, and and that's the thing that I like the best. Well, tell uh, me about your gifts. What do you see your gifts as? You know, I've never really thought about that. Well, I'm giving you the chance now. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really thought about that, but the special gift for me has been able to go at a certain pace with the handicap, so-called handicap, um, with with limited, um, I said it a while ago, with limited vision. So you had to learn right from the get-go how to move through life without being able to That's see. That's exactly well. what it is, and and I haven't, I haven't gone through life without it. I don't know what I would be or what what uh, life would be like if I, if I had 20-20 vision. I don't know what I'd be like. So to me, this given, this eyesight that I'm given is a special, special gift because I'm always using it, um, utilizing it the best I know how. That's the lesson for me. That's the gift. And so you have to do that now as you're battling cancer. You've got these health issues and you have to slow down. You have a walker mm -hmm. that you use, mm -hmm. so you're just trying to make the best of it. Now, sometimes I don't do that well. What do you mean? I don't do it that well. I forget, you know, I forget what I'm supposed to be doing. Does that mean that you're not quite as serene as you should be? Yeah. You, are, oh, you fight about it? Right. You know, you fight it and you get angry about it? Yeah. And because, and, you know, you f we all forget sometimes we're human, we're human beings, and uh, we forget or become ungrateful. And I forget that. The thing that I, makes me remember is when I have my family all around me, and I can look and I can say, what a lucky man I am. And, and, and um, you know, I can look at each one of those individual people from wife on uh, to the smallest one. And I said, oh, I'm so damn lucky.
and and it puts me back on the track again. Good. You know, because we're all on a little train. We are on a little train. Yeah. When you wake up in the morning, do you have hopes for how the day will go, or what makes it a good day for you? Makes it a good day when I do a little reading of my own. Um, thank the good Lord for another another night of rest. Um, and uh, so we, we go on with that. Sometimes I forget to read my literature, and um, that's when I have the bad times. There's something that I want to talk about. This day and age, phrases that we all grew up with suddenly are not okay to use. What do I call you? Are you, are you an indigenous person? Are you an Indian? What is respectful and the right way to say it? I'm not quite sure. Indians doesn't offend me, um, except it's not the right title. You know what I mean? What is the right title? That's, I don't know that. I don't know Native that. Native American? Native people. Native, Native people. people is one of my favorites. Um, indigenous to me is a little too, I don't, I never use it, indigenous. Uh, maybe because I can't spell it. But so, you are fine with, you're an Indian. Yeah. You're a Passamaquoddy Indian. The, the, the Passamaquoddy part is the thing that, that I'm most proud of. If people will say, you know, that this is, this is a Passamaquoddy Indian man, or this is a Penobscot Indian Nation man. And we still call this a reservation? Yeah, or okay, community. And, and do I call it an Indian community? I, that's what I like the best, personally, right. yeah. So Indian people? Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more thing, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end. Okay. I want you to say something in your language, like, is there a short blessing or something that you could give that? Sure. I used to do it with uh, Blanche, but I do it with Joanna, who, who does it a lot just across the way here. Um, but it goes like this. Wulewun eligizi apshmildag kagiop mausuagan kamajanulaz weltamotiban eliapnumiag nagakmilinen psiw etanawak psigapsay kchiwulewun nijanuk kchiwulewun na apijik now, what that means, do you want a translation? I do. Thank you for bringing us here together again. We are so grateful that we are here as a community. We are so here th with our children. We are so here with our women. We are so here with our men. We are so here with our elders. And uh, we are so here as gather for another day of your special blessings 
thank you for another day for your blessings. Knowledge, which means let us be together. So it's a fairly short one, but it's very inclusive. How do you say thank you? Woolly one. Woolly one. Yeah, woolly one. Woolly one. Yeah. So I would like to say to you, woolly one. You've been listening to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Wayne Newell, a Passamaquoddy Indian man from Indian Township in Princeton, Maine. This podcast was made possible by Avida of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. And many thanks to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com. If you enjoyed my conversation with Wayne, please share it with a friend. You'll find more episodes of Conversations About Aging on my blog, Catching Health, at catchinghealth.com.